Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Today I'm talking to Russ Mould, a prolific market pundit and investment research director at AJ Bell, one of the UK's largest investment platforms with 54.3 billion of invested assets. Russ's extensive experience in capital markets began in 1991, managing funds at Scottish Equitable before being entrusted with UBS's tech coverage as an equity analyst two years later. Twelve years on, Russ decided he needed a change, becoming a writer, then editor at the renowned Shares magazine. And once that was acquired by AJ Bell in 2014, Russ was chosen to head up the company's investment research efforts, a role he performs to this day. We discuss whether the great rotation is finally here, what that means for investors' portfolios, and where to find outperformance in a new market cycle and the new normal. Russ identifies the sectors, industries, and companies that have shone amid unprecedented uncertainty and which are likely to be at the vanguard of the next cycle. Russ is consistently asked to contribute to Bloomberg, This Is Money, CNBC, and many other top publications besides, and it was a joy to have him on the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome, Russ. Great to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Good stuff. So I wanted to start by covering a theme that we're seeing in current markets or current equity markets, I should say, before we get into a bit more detail about your background. So my first question is, are we in or approaching a new market cycle, in your opinion? I think there's got to be a chance just because what's happening in the background at the moment is highly unusual, at least in in modern investing times with the the pandemic and then the policy response, which in many ways has you could argue was as prompted a recession or certainly you know d- deepened it potentially given the the lockdowns which the medical authorities and politicians have felt has been has been necessary so you, some people i think will go as far as arguing the wounds are self inflicted but that's a, a a debate i don't really want to get into but i think given the the dramatic background you, you could see something different emerge just because what we're seeing is very unusual and the policy response has been so substantial in terms of the restrictions of public movement the monetary policy response was much more substantial and quicker than we saw after the financial crisis of over a decade ago. And the fiscal response, which is leading to ever deeper and bigger government deficits. There are lots of things that are happening at the extremes there. So I guess it would be logical to assume that something potentially very different from what we've seen over the last 10 years is going gonna, is gonna to be the net result in the end, which I know some people are starting to argue quite openly could be inflation, which... If that's the case, well, we haven't seen that during my 30-odd year financial services career. So that really would be um, potentially a massive game changer. Mm, yeah, I, I thought a, a sort of bout of inflation might, I suppose, be the tipping point. Um, and I, I guess a result of this new market cycle, if indeed we're in one. Yeah, if, if it happens, I think it will be a phenomenal change because everything that's worked over the last 30-odd years... Uh, and possibly a bit beyond that, so starting going back to when Paul Volcker took over at the Federal Reserve in the early 1980s, everything that we've seen has been effectively disinflation, interest rates going lower, and, and that has favoured growth stocks. It's favoured, to a degree, pricing power stocks. It's obviously hugely favoured bonds, but it's generally given more, an awful lot of asset classes a lift. If you were to get inflation now, well, if history is any guide, and I admit it, it's no guarantee, then that would in theory lead to a preference for, for cyclicals relative to and value relative to growth. Because if there's 
lots of inflation and there's potentially lots of growth just lying around in the street at much lower multiples. So you wouldn't need to pay huge multiples to access growth stocks. It would favor real assets and stuff, mm. uh, commodities, uh, precious metals particularly. And it obviously would do absolutely no good for bonds or cash at all. So it would be a huge sea change from what we've seen previously. Yeah, interesting. And I, we'll cover, I guess, current market opportunities towards the end of the interview. And actually, mm. that's worked really well to uh, whet the appetite of some of our listeners, I'm sure. So I'll use this juncture then to move to your background. Before we discuss your current day job, I just wondered whether finance had always been a passion of yours. Um, it, it started at university. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I had no concept that people would have enough money that they actually needed somebody to help them run it. You know, a wealth manager or a, or a financial advisor, that just wasn't the background from, from which I came at all. And that's not because my parents, you know, weren't, weren't savvy or didn't work hard. My, my dad was a postman. My mum was an accountant. At a, at a well-known Yorkshire building firm. But no, it, it wasn't anything I was really particularly interested in until I, I got to university when I, uh, I guess like many students, didn't spend all of my time reading my books. And I spent a lot of time reading the papers and, and, and keeping in touch with current affairs and debating those with, with my mates. And the, the one section I'd never, ever read of the newspaper when I was a kid was the financial section. I'd always sat at the back and kind of vaguely worked my way towards the front, missing out the financial bits. But then um, when I was at university, I had a little bit more time. So I picked up those. I actually had one or two friends who well, I think had bought some Euro Tunnel or Euro Disney shares at the time. Uh, and we were, well, we were therefore got into the habit of looking how quickly those were going down. So I suppose that's probably slightly where the bug started. And actually during my first term at university was the Black Monday crash of 87. So that then took it onto the front pages. So I did notice them. So I suppose it was probably that confluence of events that that first got me interested. And after three years of reading the papers at university, I began to develop a bit of an interest in it. And I was, I guess, intrigued by the psychology of it, which was you would read a piece of news in the paper, so-and-so reports really good profits and dividends and the share price would go down and -and so-and-so would report dreadful numbers and the share price would go up. So it began to make me think quite how financial markets began to tick. And I I didn't really have any clue about how that works until I started my first job. So the bug probably bit when I was at university. Yeah, so then what, what was your first job in finance after that? My first job in finance was actually as a, as a fund manager, a trainee fund manager at Scottish Equitable in Edinburgh, which is now a part of, which is now part of Keynes Capital. Um, and I guess Scottec was probably a value house. Uh, it, it, it was very much in the vanguard, had been very much in the vanguard at the time of, of international diversification. There were still lots of life companies that were very heavily exposed to UK equities and not much else. And the, the chief investment officer of the time, a lovely guy called David Kirkpatrick and his, and his colleague Tom Crombie, have been very, very passionate advocates very early on of international diversification and also emerging markets. So I think we've got to give them both absolutely full credit for that. I got a fantastic training there. I was a junior fund manager on the European Equity Desk looking after the Scandinavian markets initially and I graduated uh, eventually to Switzerland. So I got a f- phenomenal training there. I guess two things probably shaped my views forever just because of how you learn and what you learn. One, I think it's got it were probably a value house and a bit of a contrarian house. Uh, and secondly, um, I started off in a bear market <laughs> looking for the downside risk rather than necessarily the upside opportunity, which you could argue was a good thing and you could argue was a bad. It's probably made me a, probably a bit more cautious than perhaps I would have been had I started off, say, three or four years later. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. It's, it's, it's um, often the case, and particularly when I've done these interviews with other um, experts in the financial space, those formative years have influenced their, their kind of investment philosophy and their outlook on markets, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, which is, which is really fascinating. Um, 
And I believe, having done a bit of research before uh, before the call, your next role was at UBS. And I think you were there for quite a while. I was, yeah. I was actually, um, I, I actually, I was my, a lot became UBS. My my next job was actually SG Warburg, which was a, which was which is now or part of it became part of UBS. I got on very well with some of the analysts and and equity salesmen at SG Warburg. They were looking for young analysts and they, you know, over a boozy dinner one night, they sort of gave me the nod and said, would I like to have a think about it? Um, so I, I went down for interview and after a very, very, very rigorous interview process was, was offered a job as a junior analyst with a terrific um, equity analyst, a guy called James Golob, who was then one of the major players in global telecommunications equity research with, with his brother, Peter, who was on the corporate finance side. And they taught me unbelievable amounts of, of things about equity research and James was going to be so busy uh, basically privatizing the world's telecoms companies he needed somebody to take on his European technology coverage so I was very quickly given responsibility for companies like um, Siemens, Alcatel, um, Ericsson, a, a very small as then unknown Finnish company called Nokia uh, and over time we began to broaden out that coverage into um, some of the electrical stocks like ABB and also um, some of the Tech, or Philips Electronics was another one that we, we, we did. And also then companies like ST Microelectronics, ASM Lithography, they came on over time. So I joined SG Warburg in 1993. My first business card actually said SG Warburg Incorporating Ackroyd, Mullen, Smithers, Rowan, Pittman. So all the big bang names were still there. Mm. Uh, and then I did European technology stocks and to a degree some global technology stocks for the next 12 years, which if you're going to cover tech was a pretty exciting time to do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so as you say, you were there for, well, over a decade, I suppose. I mean, I'm just particularly interested in sort of, because you don't often speak to someone that's been at one company for that extensive a period. Uh, and that's obviously becoming a, a less frequent trait in uh, in kind of younger workers these days as well. So just in terms of working for such a big, large international business like UBS for over 10 years or so, what, can you give us any insight into the transformation during your tenure there? Yeah, I think it was interesting that I joined a bank, SG Warburg, that had 800 people. And I probably left, when I left UBS, it probably had 80,000 people. So in that respect, it was, a, it was a phenomenal change. That said, I was within the same department for the whole time, uh, European Equity Research, where there was a phenomenally strong franchise that had been developed by Warburg and was, it was then taken on by, first of all, SBC, which took over Warburg's in 95, I think, and then... SBC did the reverse takeover of UBS in 98. But yeah, you, you naturally saw a change in the culture because SG Warburg had an incredibly distinctive culture, which I think Niall Ferguson captured brilliantly in his book on Sigmund Warburg when he talks about haute banque and the concept of client first. Um, I think investment banking, investment banking did change um, a lot over that time, and not just at Warburg or UBS or SBC, but across the, across the whole range. Um, and I think, yes, the culture did change. I'm not saying there was a, there was a loss of customer focus. There wasn't because without customers and clients, you've, you've got no business at all. But I think there was definitely a, I mean, there was clearly a move towards certain other areas like proprietary trading, for example, and obviously the hedge fund client base developed. So there was a prime brokerage. There were lots of different new business strands developed. So there were lots of different requirements on the analyst's time. But in the end, the core job of the analyst was the same, which was go out and find fantastic ideas and pitch them to bright people and, and see what they thought. Yeah. And then after all of that, and after all of that sort of analysis work that you were doing on a daily basis in 2005, I believe you, you go on to become editor of Shares Magazine, which of course is now owned by AJ Bell, your current yeah. editor. Um, I, I just, I, I guess I was interested to understand kind of 
what incited the move into into journalism really i think initially sheer exhaustion to be honest with you. I, I, I don't and that's not to say journalists don't work hard at all by the way but i think after 12 years at, at warburg sbc ubs i covered the same 8 10 12 15 companies for a long time um, I, I just really needed a bit of a change it, it, and this is you know I, I loved covering Philips electronics it's it's again changed itself completely in the in the in the last 15 years uh, since I looked at it um, but, but when I got to my 50th career set of Philips quarterly results a certain sense of deja vu crept in as I s- crept up to the morning meeting microphone in front of the salesman you know three divisions are better than expected, two are worse, one's in line, I'm moving my numbers around by 5%, I'm still a buyer or a holder of the store, a seller of the stock, whatever it was at the time. And I just felt that no disrespect to Philips and ST Microelectronics and Siemens, all the companies that, you know, after 50 sets of quarterly results, it was possibly time for, for something a little, bit, uh, a little bit different. So I initially left the bank with not actually not necessarily great insights into what I wanted to do other than I just needed a bit of a break. And I, if I was still on the hamster wheel, I wouldn't get a chance to think about it properly. I did initially, in fairness, look at jobs outside financial services just to see what was out there. Uh, and most people recoiled in terror when they saw my, my CV, um, either presuming they think that I'd have to pay me too much or I'd have too many ideas and make a proper nuisance of myself. So I, I didn't get very far there. So I spent a very happy six months sitting on Brighton Beach, unwinding and sorting out my paperwork and getting engaged and all those exciting lifetime things. Um, and then I, I was thought, well, sitting on Brighton Beach in November is going to be nowhere near as much fun as sitting on Brighton Beach in July and August. So I better find something to do with myself. And just looking the papers idly one day, I saw an advertisement for a, for a writer at Shares magazine, which I felt was an interesting opportunity because it meant I could still trade off what I knew, who I knew, keep in touch with my mates and, and, and still do the best bit of broking, which was see companies come up with ideas and, and write about them and pitch them. And maybe not do all of the really some of the more tricky stuff with broking, which was dealing with you know stressed out traders, hedge fund managers doing 800 plane flights a year and endless presentations. So it seemed a a good trade. The, the one trade off was the big pay cut, but I knew that was coming, and I was lucky enough to be able to take it. So I started at Shares as a writer. They gave me tech, which was kind. Gave me utilities and insurance, which was less so, but that was fairly, you know I think that's pretty standard. Um, and then in in 2008. There was a few changes at the business and I was, I was kindly offered the editor's job, which I think was a, bit, a big leap for the company because I had little editorial experience, but I had stock market experience. Again, we were in a bear market at the time, two months after I took over Lehman. Three, we, myself and a lovely guy called Simon Keane we began to run the magazine. Uh, Lehman Brothers happened. So we walked straight into that. So at least I had experience of that from the banking side and of how to manage teams through that. And Simon very much helped me with the editorial side in the early stages and was always there by my side right the way through for a very long time. So we made a pretty good team. But yeah, that was a baptism of fire watching your advertising revenue collapse pretty quickly. That wasn't a barrel of laughs, even if the markets themselves were as endlessly fascinating then as they always have been and and still are now. Yeah, I I did pick up on that when I was doing a bit of research. I mean, as you you say, you were covering markets during the financial crisis and um, in the aftermath of that market collapse, and with your readers predominantly, I believe Shares Magazine, obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but the, uh, the predominant sort of reader base or readership that you have is individual investors managing their own. Correct. DIY, private individual retail investors, absolutely right. Right, yeah. So, I mean, how conscious were you of, of the impact of your reporting? Constantly, just as I was always aware of, you know, the impact of anything I wrote for institutional clients when I was at the bank. Uh, 
perhaps even more acutely aware of it, given that you're working in dealing with private individuals. And so, you know, one of the first things that we we did was go do a very back to basics how to invest series, just because Shares Magazine, we, you, it's natural to assume that the people who are buying it are very sophisticated investors who understand a lot of the core principles of financial analysis and, and accounting and company valuation. Um, and, you know, work for, coming from an institutional background, it was easy to take that for granted. And it was something that, you know, you, you, you did have some readers who were phenomenally knowledgeable and some readers who were just starting on the journey and you, you had to appeal, therefore, to a broad church. And the one thing I think we became quickly aware of was that to make, we had to make it accessible and, try, and, all of, and, and to try and steer beginner, less experienced investors away from some of the understandable mistakes that they're all tempted to make. Don't diversify too much, too much faith in their own judgment, because in the end, one of the things that one of the things that financial markets do very quickly is keep you humble and tell you that your crystal ball is no better than anybody else's, even if you think you've got one in the first place. Mm. Uh, so they teach about diversification, they teach you about humility, and they teach you about overtrading and the dangers of that. So those were the things that I wanted to get across very quickly from my institutional experience to help retail investors avoid some of the things that could have hurt them very quickly, particularly during a bear market. And put them off for life when it's if they managed to get through that bear market, as hopefully many of them, nearly as many as possible of them did, then obviously things did get a lot easier over the next decade uh, when most financial assets did really pretty well. So hopefully we, we saw people through those extremely difficult times. And I think the, the one thing we tried to focus on then was uh, on a financial analysis basis was balance sheet first, cash flow second, PL third. And I think. Since I have left the magazine and, 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 and AJ Bell's own it and Dan Cotesworth has done a fantastic job editing it, they've broadened it out again. So it's much more all encompassing, not just investments, but uh, the, even then a, a step back from that in terms of some helpful pointers on financial planning and tax planning and just providing people with the best possible context for making the decisions that are right for them, not just about shares, but about the, the full financial journey from junior sips all the way through to inheritance tax planning so it's a very different magazine now from when i stopped editing it in 2014-15 let alone from when i in, inherited it was entrusted with it in in 2008 yeah and in 2014 then you were appointed investment research director at aj bell mm. uh, a position you hold to this day so i was just trying to get an insight i guess into your day-to-day and what an investment research director does on a daily basis for anyone that's sort of external to the industry as a lot of our listeners are can you give me it's probably an unfair question but if such a thing exists what does a typical day look like for you there probably isn't one though today is fairly representative i mean if we just take the day on which we're talking um a radio interview for bbc world service radio at 7 20 this morning on the UK unemployment data. So I, I got up about quarter to six, read the papers, made sure I'd done my prep on the on the employment data, read the employment data numbers bang on seven o'clock when they came up the Office for National Statistics website. So my thoughts all gathered, uh, logged into, it was called to the BBC, did the broadcast at 7.20. Uh, and since then, after that, I went back to the Reuters news service, went through that because we keep several spreadsheets up to date as best we can on, on company dividend payments and, and capital raises and things. Go through all the news, look at what stories uh, are breaking, look at what share price is doing, because I've got the luxury of what do I think is an interesting story? I don't need to think about it. I just let Mr. Market tell me because I can look at how much share prices are moving, and that's the market's way of telling me what's interesting. There was a piece on Derwent London's results for 
uh, journalists. We, we sent that out, just looking at what I think the key issues are, both at the company and then more widely in terms of London commercial property to hopefully help journalists write their pieces and make, meet their deadlines. And since then, I've been dealing with a number of incoming requests from national trade journalists, topics ranging from emerging markets to silver, to the financial services industry in recession, uh, to dividend cuts, to prudential breaking itself up, to, um, to base metals. So a very broad range of things to think about, which is why the job's very interesting. So if you look at the investment director's position, it's probably got three or four things to it, one of which is producing comments for our customers and clients, our DIY clients and our financial advisor, uh, DIY customers and financial advisor clients and, and their clients, help keep them informed and provide them with a context for making financial decisions that, are, 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 again, are best for them. Then it's helping out broadcasts and, and, and print and online media. Um, I then do um, a weekly podcast, which I'm going to be recording later on today, which, again, is part of the client's um, I guess, education, you could argue, or client contact development work. Uh, and I'm on the uh, board of the AGBL Investments business where I, I, you know, I work on the, or I'm on the commi- investment committee, I should say, not the board. I'm on the investment committee of AGBL Investments as um, a qualified financial advisor helping to oversee strategic uh, asset allocation decisions at the quarterly meetings. So it's a very broad ranging brief. And although no day, two days are ever the same because you're being asked about all different topics every different time. Those are the sort of probably the broad strands of it, I guess. Yeah, interesting. And um, I guess most acutely manifested in your appointment, perhaps, uh, is this commitment on behalf of AJ Bell to market commentary and punditry and always having kind of a point of view on on markets out there. I mean, your, your, your quotes, for instance, are frequently in a lot of the biggest UK publishers and abroad as well. I just is that a fair assessment that AJ Bell are committed to market commentary and punditry uh, across the board? Well, yeah, I mean we're committed to helping customers have you know, make the decisions that are right for them. You know, we 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 don't we're not authorised. I am an authorised and qualified financial advisor. You can find me on the FCA register, but AJ Bell is not authorised to give financial advice, so we don't. So you know, we 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 provide context, we provide commentary, which hopefully will help people. You know, sort out what isn't for them, what is for them, and make them make doing their research a lot easier for them. And we do that through our own website, through our blogs, our podcasts, and then also, yes, to a degree, to the work I do through the I do as part of a team because there are others doing it as well uh, through the, the, the national broadcast and, and, and print and online press. Um, the, the press that is also an element of, of brand build for the company. You know, we are a financial services company. People will not entrust you with their hard earned savings unless they know who you are. Uh, and so I think it's important for the AGBL brand to be seen to be out there. And if major public service broadcasters or privately owned broadcasters or publicly owned broadcasters trust you to provide someone to talk sense and provide clear commentary on complex issues, you know, we like to think that that provides some you know, luster to the brand and sheen to the brand and helps people think actually that AGBL is a name that can be trusted and deserves to be trusted. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and no doubt it's working extremely well. I mean, we, we come across a lot of your commentary uh, on Opto. Uh, we produce uh, daily articles uh, and obviously your comments and quotes are frequently within sort of competitor articles and things like that. Uh, when we look at obviously the bigger UK publishers as well, like Bloomberg, uh, you're in there a lot as well. So I'm very familiar uh, with your very valuable work. 
Well, that's very flattering. I'm just hoping it's going to, you know, the benefit of nearly 30 years of doing it. I don't want to sound like I'm a dinosaur because obviously one thing that markets do is change all the time. Um, but I, and I'm seeing things I've never thought I'd see and I'm learning every single day. But uh, uh, hopefully a lot of the experience that I've got can be brought to bear to, to help other people. That's the master plan anyway. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. I'll use this point in the podcast then to turn us to current markets. I said we'd revisit some of the topics we discussed at the top of the episode. Firstly, to build on our earlier conversation about market cycles, with growth stock valuations looking pretty lofty, particularly in tech, is it now time to move out of that sector, in your opinion? I think that depends on your time horizon. I, I mean, I can give as somebody who probably did, if I'm honest, didn't expect it to get to where it's got to. You're probably talking to the wrong person. And again, I'm naturally a value person by orientation anyway. So I wouldn't have expected Apple to put on a trillion dollars of market cap in the last four months when its earnings are basically, you know, not earnings forecasts aren't going anywhere terribly fast. So once things get to this stage, the one thing I did learn in 1997 to 2000 was once they get going, they can go a lot further than you would ever dare imagine. So the one thing I would not do under any circumstances, even if I was a professional investor and had the mandate to do it, would be to short them because you're likely to get run over. Um, a very smart hedge fund manager who was a brilliant short seller, a guy in Boston, I won't name him, so I don't embarrass him, but he was a brilliant short seller. And it was one of those always embarrassing meetings when the client would actually end up teaching me more than I actually ended up telling the client. But um, he, he, he always said to me, never short a cult stock until it's at least halved. Because that's when the first doubts start to creep in and people are tempted to sell on the rallies rather than buy on the dips. And it takes a lot to break the buy on the dip mentality. So I wouldn't be caught shorting Facebook, Apple Alphabet, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft right now, even if instinct and valuation tells you it's the right thing to do because it is reminiscent of 98 2000 on all i wasn't around in 73 5 at least not looking at financial markets i was probably barely out of nappies um it is reminiscent of the nifty 50 concepts of 73 74 when people herded into a number of stocks for their scarcity for their ability to grow earnings during a difficult economic environment but by their very popularity, they became more dangerous because their valuations got so high, there was no margin for error if anything went wrong. So I wouldn't be shorting them. If you own them, I congratulate you. Could I see them going higher? Yes. But as they go higher, if, I, if it was my money, and I'm, by the way, not allowed to run my own money under AG Bell rules. I have a financial advisor, so, I don't, so no customer or client can think I'm taking the mickey by buying or selling something that I'm talking about. If I was allowed to run my own money and I'd been smart enough to have them, uh, I'd probably be gently top slicing them on the good days and looking at other things to do with my money, if the truth be told. But yes, I, I, once you've got markets like this where liquidity is strong and the bit, the bit is between the bull's teeth, they could go. And, and, and frankly, in a, in a wider market environment where we're looking at ever higher government budget deficits, where we're looking probably at more quantitative easing somewhere down the road, interest rates aren't going up in a hurry because they can't. There's too much debt out there. And so what happens with the next recession? You know, I don't want to sound like a doom-monger here, but at some stage there will be one. Even when we come out of this one, there will be another one. There's no money in the kitty. There's no fuel in the tank. So you'd imagine that QE would be, again, a possible tool for central banks. 
So I think whether I buy into the inflation thesis or not, and I admit it's terribly beguiling, just because nobody's expecting it to come and that's the way the world tends to work, uh, I certainly would be looking, if I was a financial advisor or a private individual, to try and protect my wealth from the debasement of currency from its mass production out of thin air. And so if I was sliding gently out of uh, some of those big techie names, then there are other areas I might be looking at which perhaps are capable of providing inflation, sorry, index-linked cash flows or some inflation protection, whether it's maybe infrastructure or, or possibly precious metals will be areas that I would personally be uh, more interested in. And I know my advisor is, to a degree, running a kind of four-bucket system of cash, precious metals, infrastructure as bond proxy, and then kind of equity income as a sort of overall umbrella strategy. And, and I, I, well, that's one of the reasons why I employed them. I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And then I guess on the impact of that trend on kind of the wider global equity markets and, and even the economy, I suppose, I've asked a few of our guests about the current divergence between economic data and the outperformance we've seen in equity markets. Firstly, what's your take on that? It's, it's I mean, yes, I mean, they're dead right, because the S&P 500 is 16% up on a year ago, and I find it hard to argue that the world is a 16% better place. With, and this is somebody who's trying, you know, generally speaking in financial markets, you'd better be glass half full because generally, you know, they do go up over time and betting against human ingenuity is not a clever thing to do. You know, you, you, you can see over time that the world is, for all of its faults, a consistently better place. Uh, I know that doesn't mean that there isn't more that can be done to raise the bar of, of wealth and, and work on poverty, but there's been the improvements over the last 30, 40, 50 years, let alone last 100, are, are unbelievable. So to, to bet against that, I think, isn't smart. So for all the fact that I'm a train, contrain and value hunter, I'm, I am, I promise you, a, 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 an optimist. But I think there are clearly ch- challenges out there at the moment in terms of the pandemic. I'm sure that will be, will be tackled. But I think I find it hard to argue right now for all the fact I'm an optimist, the world is a 16% better place than it was a year ago, or, and, or the earnings will be 16% higher this year, uh, or the earnings will snap back quickly. So there's got to be another explanation. I think uh, the one view is that we are going to recover really quickly because central banks and governments have shoveled over 20 trillion US dollars at this through fiscal and monetary stimulus. If you assume that world GDP is going to drop about 10% this year, then that's 9 trillion of shortfall with 20 trillion thrown at it. So you can do the maths and argue actually that big hole is just going to be filled in and covered up with more to spare. So we are going to be okay, really. Uh, And if you're prepared to look through the bad numbers and look, towards what you hope will be sunny uplands, I can, I can see that's very beguiling. Again, you've got the, the, the influence of a very small selection of stocks that are driving key indices like the S&P 500, as we've, as we've discussed with, the, with the, the FANG stocks. And then you've got that there is no alternative to the teeny argument. Interest rates are rock bottom. There's plenty of liquidity. And again, if paper money is going the way that paper money always goes in the end, which is down in value, then you want to be in stuff, and that can include equities and companies, which ultimately will provide you with a share of their cash flow through dividends. So I can see why it's happening. Uh, again, it, it doesn't make you entirely comfortable, but in the, in the view that central banks will keep on shoveling money at it, and I think given their policy of wealth creation through financial markets after the financial crisis and the fact that they know that everybody's got a private pension and the government can't afford to fund everybody's pensions, I think they will move heaven and earth to try and sustain financial valuations to at least some degree. Under those circumstances, I think you're going to need some exposure to real stuff and equities and be a little bit wary of cash over the next 
three to 10 years, certainly. Yeah. So to move then to what we're actually seeing kind of in reality, what these companies are reporting uh, throughout earnings season, as we've seen over the past few weeks. Uh, and if we focus on the UK, how difficult has it been, do you think, to, to get a firm grip on how companies are likely to perform with firms, understandably, having chosen to stay relatively tight-lipped on guidance? Yeah, and, and, I, and I, you know, my wife works in the real world. She works for a, a very well-known retail company that's just kind of lifestyle brand. And so, I, I, you know, she works down floor on floor below me normally. And she's, um, you know, I can hear what they're going through in terms of budgeting and reforecasting. Um, and so I, I know what it's like. And, you know, when I was at Shares Magazine, I was on the management board of that business. So I, I have been involved in running proper companies and not just talking about them. So no, I, from companies, it's been monumentally difficult. I think what companies have generally done is a terrific job of husbanding cash. I'm not sure they were all doing a brilliant job of it beforehand. Um, and a lot of sort of bull market, lackadaisical things like share buybacks have crept in, which I don't particularly approve of personally, at least under certain specific circumstances. But I think companies did respond quickly. Uh, they will have clearly budgeted very prudently. And I think my sense is, you know, looking at the statements that we've seen over the last three or four weeks, when there's been a rush of interim statements, things are probably not quite as bad as companies thought, thought they would be, whether that's because things are actually a bit better or just because they under-promised and over-delivered intentionally. It's hard to tell. But you've now seen 25 FTSE company, FTSE company or UK listed, or UK quoted, I should say, because there's an name quoted company or two in there, mm-hmm. uh, restored dividend payments. So I think that might lead me to argue that if they really feel comfortable enough to return to the dividend list, that is a big commitment because if you have to cut again, you look like a bit of an idiot. So nobody wants that and it's a bit embarrassing and it'll hurt your share price if you have to go back. So I think that's a decision that just like cutting isn't taken lightly, going back on the list isn't taken lightly either. So the fact that you've got a few companies feeling safe enough to come back and look up the parapet and then jump over it again makes me feel that again to be optimistic about it maybe we are coming through the worst the question then is of course is how rapid will the recovery be and and that frankly is unforecastable because there are just so many different variables most of which relate to either the pandemic or the political or fiscal or monetary policy response and i forget who it was who said it and i owe them a profound apology because i'm going to therefore going to steal their quote but he was an economist and he said well i always get asked for forecasts and i say yes but economic forecasts rely upon forecasts of what politicians are going to do when nothing is more unpredictable yeah completely i mean so i mean you said you were being optimistic or to look at the optimistic side of it if, if i can look at the pessimistic side of the markets and and kind of our outlook there the 5100 is down uh, around about 20 percent for the year and with companies in downtrodden industries like oil and gas and banking making up a large proportion of the index are we likely, do you think, to see this downtrend continue well into 2021? I must admit, the FTSE 100 is a bit of a horror of an index. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it ended 1999 in the tech peak. The tech boom was 69.30, and we're still clinging on just, what is it, to 6,000 now or something, I think. Uh, and part of that is down, as you've correctly identified, just to the stuff that's, that's in there, oils, banks, utilities, uh, I'm not knocking the pharmaceutical stocks, but they're big ones. They're not necessarily galloping biotechs, but the, you know, AstraZeneca and Glaxo are both trying a bit of a renaissance right now, but I'm not, so I'm not knocking them necessarily. But in terms of the business mix, it's, it's not massively propitious. I guess you could say that saving graces would be, if, the U, if there is 
this move to inflation, if there is this move to investors deciding they want to own real stuff, not cash stuff, then actually the FTSE 100 probably isn't the worst place in the world to be because you might still see a surprise rapprochement in oil. I suspect that people are probably written off oil a little bit too early and secure for low oil prices is always low oil prices. You can see supply side disruption, destruction right now. So I wouldn't be writing off oil just yet because we all haven't got enough EV charging points and we haven't got enough wind turbines. These things are going to take time. And if you did see growth and inflation and interest rates, heaven forbid, actually going up, then places like banks and oils are actually not dumb places to be. And the utilities and with their index linked revenue streams wouldn't actually be ridiculously silly places to be. And the UK does ultimately have rule of law, an independent central bank, and probably a pretty cheap currency. So it's not, and it's still offering a dividend yield of probably three and a half percent. You can quickly make a contrarian case for the UK, but in the environment that we've had of low growth, disinflation, commodities under pressure, it's just not been the right place. And we've still got Brexit in the background, of course. It's, it's not been the right place to be for, for a long time. I can make a case for the UK and I'm often tempted to do so. I'd probably, if you really, if that inflation growth cyclicals value scenario played out, you're probably better off playing it through emerging markets, which have contrived to do even worse than the UK generally, last decade, and, and conceivably even Japan, which is chock full of cashed up, cheap, high quality um, cyclical and engineering and manufacturing and exporting companies. So the UK would benefit under a certain environment. Um, but yeah, in the current environment, it's the, the, the mix of the FTSE 100 is profoundly unhelpful for an index. So for somebody who's owning the UK through an index tracker, like an ETF or a track, then that's something of which you need to be acutely aware. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. And then I to talk about earnings season on a company basis, I suppose, are there any big winners, in inverted commas, of this somewhat unprecedented earnings season that you can highlight? So any that sort of surprised you in, in kind of how well they've done or how well they've battled the economic uncertainty that we've seen? No, I mean, the, the, the clear winners have been, uh, it goes back, some of it goes back to the FANG stocks. They have models, they are, on, they are online. Um, they provide solutions to problems that have encountered. They do it efficiently, they do it cost effectively, they do it easily. Um, so they've been phenomenal winners, and that goes for providers of online services, whether it's financial services or pizzas. You know, they, they have been in the right place, and they are providing a, a solution to a problem. So they have been the great winners. The understandable losers are those whose businesses rely on people interacting and meeting face-to-face or in enclosed areas. So restaurateurs, publicans, cinema owners, theatre owners, owners of bowling alleys and leisure facilities – they are, the, they are the big losers. The only good news from a share price perspective is, is we know all that. We've been able to work that out for a while. The question is, you know, how quickly are they able to get their businesses back to somewhere near normal and at what cost in terms of extra staffing or extra equipment or whatever it happens to be. So we, we, the, the losers are clear. The winners are clear. It's now to a degree, what degree is that factored into the share price and, and what will change perception? And, you know, I think commercial property is a particularly interesting one in that respect, looking at Derwent London today. Their net asset value was down only a couple of percent. Their, their net rental income was down only a couple of percent. Uh, they actually raised their dividend and they made a great show in their, in their, in, in their press release about you know, how commercial property is one of the solutions to the current problem in that, you know, they've got low rise buildings. 
They've got large area buildings and that future designs will be, you know, green ESG oriented. So they'll be carbon neutral. They'll be light. They'll be airy. They'll be when they'll ventilated. They'll be low rise. They won't need to pack loads of people into lifts. So you can see how commercial property could be a potential aid to whatever the new normal looks like. But obviously the first thing in the first place is you've got to get people to go back into the office. Now, when they do, they might need twice as much space. So again, that might not mean that there's necessarily a collapse in demand for commercial property, but you're a lone voice in the wilderness arguing that right now. And Derwent London traded a 25% discount to net asset value. I guess the one thing it's got going for it is that a Majesty's government's his biggest individual tenant. And if they can't pay the bills, then nobody can. But so I think there are some idiosyncratic company names and like that that are, I think intrigue me. But again, you're struggling to find a catalyst in the NSM that will change market perception and make people think differently. But there are, I think, some intriguing stories out there. And the other big winners, just looking casually, uh, as you'd expect, will be the gold and silver miners because they've just got cash coming out of every pocket at the minute. Uh, Barrick Gold in America yesterday, sentiment uh, in the UK last week. You know, just very substantial increases in revenues, profits and cash flow, and that's leading to big increases in dividends. And if, you know, dividend cuts has been the theme of the year in the UK with around 40-odd billion pounds worth of them, companies that increase their dividend, you would expect would, would catch the eye. Now, I know gold and silver have just come off the top a little bit. They went up in a straight line. Gold miners the same, so it's understandable as a pause for breath. But again, if we get, the further we go down that deficit QE path, I think the more people will will be more inclined to look at gold and silver as potential solutions and remedies there, um, just because that's generally the way the lessons of history would point you. Yeah. To finish the main body of the interview then and, and to focus on opportunities, we've discussed rel- uh, a fair few sort of sectors and themes. Um, but I, I wondered then, is it the cyc- cyclical value sector of the market that you see most attractive I don't know, let's say within kind of a two-year time horizon. I think you've got to be a bit careful there because a lot of these companies are cheap for a really good reason, which is their industry has been disrupted and hollowed out. And that could be media companies, for example. Um, it, and it still might be oil companies and commercial properties, commercial landlords over time. You don't know. So I think some of those stocks are, are there for a reason. Or they've got pots of debt, which I think, again, is something that you, you, you constantly need to be aware of. I know it's, it works great during economic upturns, but it's agonizingly hard work otherwise um so i would be a little bit careful there. I, I i i think if i wanted to go down the sort of value cyclical route i would probably do it through emerging markets again i think japan would be more interesting and I, and I still think although they've had a great run if we do get inflation and there's no guarantee the money supply spikes will lead to it but so few people are just positioned for it or expect it to happen i, I still would suspect that Precious metal miners could surprise on the upside. And even the base metal miners might do, because again, we've had 10 years where commodities have underperformed equities absolutely hands down. And, and again, it, it, it would just take something unexpected to, to, cause, to, to flick that switch because you know, commodities outperformed equities hands down for 10 years. Now it's equities have done it for 10 years. And the world just doesn't stay the same for very long. And there's a natural dangerous tendency to extrapolate from current experience to the future. And it, and the, it just doesn't work out that way. And it, it could be because of something exogenous like a pandemic, or it just could be, a if there is such a thing now, a common or garden recession. But, you know, I think with more and more debt in the system and central banks and governments have, having tried to fix the debt crisis by encouraging people to borrow more cheaply, we, we are in a situation where by interest, it's going to be very hard to raise it to get interest rates higher. And when trouble comes in future, they're going to have to reach very quickly for the deficit and printing button, and that will lead to 
some of the scenarios that we've discussed. So I, I think if there's something that's going to upend growth, it, it could be regulation, but it could even just, again, be inflation because then there's just more growth around for everybody to play with. So I think those are the ways I think about it. EM, I think UK is, is the ultimate contrarian, quite intriguing. Um, but I think EM and Japan probably more tempting and probably not quite as edgy or as dangerous. Yeah, that's great. Um, and actually, that, that brings us perfectly to the close on the main body of the interview. Uh, so what I typically do with uh, with all our guests is actually finish on a, a sort of lighthearted way, I suppose, to, mm. end, to end the episode. And that's our quick fire question round. Okay. So you can answer in as little as one sentence, <laughs> in one word, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the first question is, what is the top mistake investors make? Over trading. Yeah. Definitely heard that one before. Definitely good advice there. So question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? You read specific publishers, for example. T front to back every day. And it was the first thing that was that was taught to me at both my fund first and bank. It's a perfect distillation of what the key issues are in the market right now. I was also taught never get caught reading it at your desk because you should have done it before very early in the day. Yeah. Okay. And then a tricky one for question three. What's the most memorable moment from your career today? I think the tech boom and bust of 1998 to 2003, just how markets can make a fool of you on the way up and on the way down, even when you're being careful and prepared. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then our penultimate question, a top tip for your younger self. Speak less and listen more. It's something I'm very good at now, but I wasn't very good to start off with. You, you know, you're born with two ears and one mouth, so use them in that proportion. Yeah, yeah I'm sure that'll resonate with, uh, with <laughs> everyone listening. Question five then, what gets you mentally ready as part of your morning routine? I tell you what, it would, under normal circumstances, it would be getting up, getting ready and putting a suit and a tie on. Other than that, I feel like I'm ready for action no matter what time of day it is. At the moment, it's a bit different. Yeah, exceptional circumstances. No, that's great. Uh, you've been really generous with your time already, so I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Russ. Uh, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.